Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. There is no shame in dying for nothing. That's why most people die. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, after the pretty good response to our IDW-tinged last episode, what topic do you want to cover today? The witch hunt against Brett Kavanaugh or how gender studies and critical theory are destroying America? <laughs> I, I would rather talk about uh, the chilling effects of free speech on campus. Mm. That's, the, that's, that's good, yes. It's like you can't say anything anymore. <laughs> I feel it's a coddled generation. A, I know, I know that maybe that's why uh, uh, we've gotten increasingly less repugnant over time. Yes, um, which we are, <laughs> which we are. That's a streak we are looking to break today. <laughs> uh, I am nervous. <laughs> you are really. Oh my god, you have been chilled. You're. Really I've been chilled. Okay, so here's what we're talking about. So wait, let's just for for once say what we're doing on the episode. Uh, oh before. yeah. So in the second segment, we're going to t- try to make Dave David Pizarro less afraid of death from Cornell University. From Cornell University, less afraid of death by a, uh, reading a couple things. One that talks about why immortality wouldn't be a good thing, wouldn't be something that we could desire. And two, uh, a study that you brought to my attention that presents evidence for the view that people are happier when they're about to die than you would expect, right? Right. That's not the best way of describing it. So so both both conceptual and empirical uh, evidence to disabuse me of this this patently irrational fear of death. Crippling. 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 <laughs> Crippling even. It's why I drink. And as a special bonus for all you Twin Peaks fans, stay tuned after the final music at the end of the episode. Eliza Summers, my daughter, will be joining us to explain her twin peaks theory and we had a nice little discussion about that but in the first segment we had this idea first of all some listeners have complained that we're less repugnant in recent years now it could just be because we've gotten older but it could just be who knows Uh, that would be i was thinking about that the worst the worst explanation if this is true which i'm not sure it is would be that we matured i know wouldn't that be horrible Okay, um, so here's a text that, that started what we're going to do for this first segment. 
uh, a text series that that Dave and I had. Um, so it started because somebody tweeted us about our last episode, and there was just something about the tweet. It sort of misunderstood us, and then kind of carried on, and in the end said, we must be dualists. It was something about our a conversation we had with Sam Harris. And I just knew. I don't know how I know it. There's no... Th- theory I have. I knew that this was going to be enough, even though you never respond to people on Twitter, or hardly ever, that there was something about this one that you were going to, and you did. So then I texted you and said, I can predict with 90% accuracy which tweets you'll reply to. And then you said, please text me first and stop me. And then said, there should be like a Freedom for Friends app. So this is a device that keeps me, that I've recommended, that keeps me up from going online. And he says, where you can remotely disable someone's ability to be online, like a friend's. Right, so Tamler could turn off my Twitter access remotely. Exactly, or you could turn (laughs) off mine, or or even better, Reddit. (laughs) And then you said, I'd allow you to be my surrogate for Twitter decisions, but not for Pornhub. And I said, then forget it. And then you said, I don't want granular control. This is your text. And make it so I could only make you watch midget granny porn. And so then I said, that's all I watch anyway. And I said, it would be like a Frankfurt case. And this is a reference to Frankfurt examples in philosophy where somebody is manipulating you or controlling your choices in such a way that you can only make one choice, but it turns out that that's the choice that you want anyway. So they never really have to do anything because you're making the choice that they want you to choose. So even though you couldn't do otherwise you're still doing what you want to do. And according to Harry Frankfurt, that means you're still morally responsible, even if you couldn't do otherwise. So I'm already watching. The only thing I'm watching is midget granny porn. So the fact that he's making it so that that's the only kind of porn I can watch, well, that's... Anyway, you thought you then said, and this is what we're wait. About well, to let's do. A, yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. We should make porn examples of famous thought experiments, and I <laughs> thought that was a great idea. Maybe your best idea that you've ever had in the six years Probably. we've been doing this podcast. <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, so let's do it. Let's. I you know, to, like just to be serious, I think that uh, pedagogy and philosophy is suffering right now. I, I think this is a problem of the educational system. I think this is a problem of modern training in in uh, graduate school and philosophy. <laughs> I think the solution to this is to to point out the real world relevance, um, the the need even for careful critical conceptual analysis with something that that the kids today can relate to. Okay, so I've come up with I've come up with three. Two that I really like. One that I feel like is just too boilerplate. Uh, I'll do that one at the end. Uh, you want to go first? Okay, I'll go first with the with the example that that uh, that I led with in in the text conversation. Modified slightly. This one was tailored just for Tamler. Okay, so 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 here it goes. You, you Tamler, or you listener. Uh, believe and want to watch incest porn, right? This is your thing. 
Like you really, you really love incest porn. And so you, 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 you type it into to your Pornhub search box and uh, you uh, look for two sisters, right? Your sis- sister incest porn. Um, you actually believe that they're sisters. Unbeknownst to you, though, these are just actresses. They met that day on set. They're just totally pretending to be sisters. Come to find out, though, that they were both put up for adoption by the same parents and are actually sisters. So, Tambler. Yes. Did you actually get off to sister porn? <laughs> that's that's the question, this is, right? This is, and this is the, the this I, I've, I've labeled this thought puzzle get earing off. <laughs> I like that. It was between think- get your getty orgasm or get earing <laughs> off. I, it's in it. It's, it's a really interesting question. Now, of course it really is. That was, that's very parallel to a gettier case. If you just substitute, like, did you know that they were sisters? Right. <laughs> right. But here I want to know whether you really got off to incest porn. Uh, for those of you who, who may not have heard the eight, 18 different episodes where Tandler complains about Gettier cases, this is a famous case in epistemology where the question is, what is knowledge? Um, and so, so you present these, these kinds of, these kinds of uh, uh, situations where you, quote unquote, know something. Uh, but you know it's sort of well. No, you have a bull- justify. It's you meant a, to show yeah. that that knowledge is not just justified belief or true justified belief because you have a belief. You have it's right. true and it's justified, but the way in which it's true is not related to how it's justified or something. Right. Yeah. Right. So in this case, it, it, they are sisters. Um, you believe they are sisters. But and, and yeah. argue, uh, yeah, it's, it's not totally clear that it's a justified belief in that case, right? No, because exactly, this is this is I'm taking uh, some some poetic license here, some some artistic freedom to make this to make this into the one Gettier style case that Tamler would actually. Well, that's <laughs> I, I would say yes if I had to, but I need to think about a lot of different variations <laughs> and uh, counters and refinements <laughs> to that. So. <laughs> Like if it's three sisters, three sisters and a brother, like, you know, <laughs> just different relationships. You get a publication out of each and every one of them. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Here's my first one. Um, it's titled A Theory of Porn. You are in a hypothetical original position where you know nothing about your sexual tastes. You don't know if you're straight or gay or pan. You could be pan, as the kids say now. You don't know if you're into bondage or lesbians or old women or little people uh, or men or teens or whatever. And now you have to set up a porn site. And that porn site only has seven categories. (laughs) After you decide on those categories, the veil of ignorance will be removed and you'll be, (laughs) I'm actually quoting Rawls here, turned out into a society. (laughs) That's a funny kind of expression at that point. But you'll be turned out into a society where that is the only porn site available. What categories would you choose? Or is it rational to choose? (laughs) This is a a great question. I mean, if we want our porn to be just, um, uh, you know, it it has to be answered. (laughs) We have to achieve some reflective equilibrium. Um, <laughs> on what the categories would be, and and I think that that the 
true ignorance makes this almost intractable because my initial reaction is, well, you want to represent, for instance, uh, heterosexual desires, homosexual desires, maybe a few common fetishes. But that is all informed by what I already know about the empirical state of the world and the frequency with which people have it. I yeah. think you are left with, with uh, in this case, the, the, veil, the veil of ignorance fails miserably and you might as well roll the dice. <laughs> you might as well literally use a random number generator and and pick one of the poor. See, I category. actually think in the veil of ignorance, you are given empirical information about the way people kind of happen to be their psychologies. And stuff yeah, like you're that. given some some yeah. information about the psychology. So you might yeah. be able to get information about people's sexual proclivities. In fact, that information, like, didn't Pornhub sort of tabulate that information uh, yeah, they, they, they did but but it can't be too much information right i mean and this is maybe we'll link to our thought puzzle uh, uh episode this is sort of the crux like what information do you really have um right because it can't be it rawls doesn't want it to be really empirical information about about people's desires he wants to sort of intuit from from uh what he thinks might be a universal set of intuitions about distribution. So you need to know, for instance, that it has to be about sex and you need to know that people are sexually attracted to some things and you need to know that they'll be motivated. But why to can't you be mo- like, know that like 80% of people uh, like to watch straight porn, 3% like um, step, step sister, stepmother. Yeah, you could. I, what, what would be the maxi maximum? <laughs> right. That's, you would want to make sure that's I actually think that's right. You want to make sure that everybody has something mm-hmm. on the site. You wouldn't want to be the one person who like there's nothing on there for you. There's no category. So <laughs> that would be an, unju- an unjust website. And then be- after that point, you <laughs> you would want the only way that people could get more categories to enjoy would be also if that would help the people who are enjoying the fewest categories. Right. <laughs> <laughs> agreed agreed what although one one definitely one category should just be called the original position um where, <laughs> which um, is just a bunch of disembodied people like fucking each other <laughs> it's just i i just think it's doggy style i think yeah. that's the original um uh, right mine uh I, I have a couple of ones that are that are quick and easy They're more like paradoxes but classic paradoxes uh, the first is what I think everybody assumes uh, when they first hear the title of this one, Burden's Ass. Yeah. Um, so you have a website that presents only two preview windows, hmm. and you love ass. <laughs> and on the left is a, just an awesome ass. Could be, could be whatever. Man, woman, whatever. Uh, on the right side, there's an equally awesome ass. <laughs> now, they are both clearly of equivalent attraction to you Mm -hmm. um do you have any rational basis to choose which one to click on and will it be the case that if you don't you will simply starve and never (laughs) never (laughs) never be able to satiate your sexual desire you'll just sit there for the rest of your life (laughs) trying to choose between the two equally attractive options yeah that's uh that that's a tough one right like you'll never if you're in that position like you'll just never have an orgasm ever again that's, <laughs> that's right but, yeah. but the whole time you'll be really wanting one you'll just have no 
no motivating uh, reason to, to go <laughs> to either one. All right. I, my, my second one's a paradox, too. So I'll, let me just do that. Also, I think this is my favorite. It's called The Impossible Waxer. <laughs> a porn star for Brazzers also works at a salon on the side, and she gives Brazilians to every porn star at Brazzers who doesn't wax herself. That was, I, I, was, I had one of the, that was my last one too. And she gives, and she gives Brazilians to no one at Brazzers who doesn't wax herself. Does she give herself a Brazilian? Yeah, this, this is, this is the downfall of, of, uh, of logic. Yeah. At least, uh, formal logic doesn't attempt to, uh, to, to solve philosophical this is problems, like the incompleteness I, proof, essentially. Yeah, it is. Uh, my my version was was not as creative, but 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 very efficient. A fluffer fluffs all those who do not fluff themselves. <laughs> who fluffs the fluffer? <laughs> uh, so think about it. P- poor Bertrand Russell is is spin spinning in his grave. I hope he um, appreciates it. <laughs> Three. All right, I have one that I don't think is that good because it's just sort of obvious, but a woman named Mary lives in a room with no access to sex or stimulation of any kind. Uh, she reads sex books, anatomy books, biology, and learns every fact there is about orgasms. But then one day she's let out and has sex and has an orgasm. Does she learn anything new? I feel like that's this example uh, that you give is a little too close to home. It sort of describes the first 20 years of my life. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, I, so you I, had read everything there is to know. Pretty much. I, I, I was uh, I was a shy kid. I, I had no game, um, but I was curious. So I would go to the library and quite literally just read every thing that i could get my hands on <laughs> not erotica like just just like how sex works that kind of thing um so to, yes that knowledge was not very i would say that i did not know what sex was so uh dualism is true <laughs> <laughs> the, the twitter Fuck guy you. was right <laughs> oh man that tweet was inscrutable uh, I should link to it. there's another one that i just never got to but i feel like somebody uh, maybe we'll throw it out to the listeners Chinese room that experiment yeah glory hole that's all that's as far as I got but I'm sure there's you know there is there is and 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 there has to be a play on the word semantics um, yeah. So. <laughs> yeah of course all right is that rep- repugnant enough for you listeners I, I hope so I yeah. just so you know Tamler has told me that uh all of the porn he watches is organically sourced and humane um he, he's very much goes out of his way to make sure that uh <laughs> it, it exactly right the, so there's no moral issue here with That's what right. we're doing because uh yeah there probably are like factory porns so i there there very much are it's one of those issues that that much like you and your meat eating uh i turn a blind eye to <laughs> i wonder what uh, will mccaskill thinks about porn like probably fine with it, right? For the most part. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's one. There's one. I think there is a is a example to be be made out of a utility monster uh, who gets more enjoyment out of porn than anyone else. <laughs> there has to be something there. 
<laughs> he yeah. gets all the porn. <laughs> all right, should we take a break? Yep, let's take a break, and we'll be right back to talk David out of his fear of death. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. Um, we'd like to take a moment to thank all of our listeners, all of our supporters. Um, we really appreciate everything you guys do, your communication to us, the discussion that you engage in, even your inscrutable tweets about how we're dualists <laughs> secretly. Somewhere deep down inside, we appreciate it. Because after all, it led to the opening segment. If you would like to get a hold of us, uh, you can email us, verybadwizards at gmail.com. Uh, you can tweet to us at Very Bad Wizards, at Tamler, at Pease. Uh, if you want to engage in a discussion with our community, you, we have very lively discussions on Facebook, facebook.com slash Very Bad Wizards, and a lively subreddit, reddit.com slash r slash Very Bad Wizards, uh, where we we pop into every now and again and engage in discussion as well. Yeah. And, and I, I do. Should do less often. Yeah, or at least me. Even the Twitter discussion about our last, our some some of the comments about our last episode where we talked about Serena and Louis C.K., which we're definitely taking a break from. <laughs> uh, definitely, were they were? I, I was kind of proud. I mean, there was disagreement, mm-hmm. but it was kind of civil. It was for Twitter, at least. It was it was pretty amazing. Uh, for Twitter, it was yeah, it, it yeah. was almost impossible. Right, and, and, yeah. but I would say it was even civil, just in general. Just in general, on, yeah. on regular, um, and and I don't know. I mean, I'm I, I know that we have listeners across a very wide spectrum of that of that kind of uh, ideology, and I, I'm proud of it. I'm I'm proud of the fact that they can they can talk to each other, our, our little can, safe space. It gives hope in a in especially a media landscape that seems more and more hopeless, oh, yeah, hopeless and toxic. Yeah. Um, you can get a hold of us there. You can engage in discussion. Email us. We try to read them all. Well, we do read them all. Sorry, we can't respond to them all. Um, and you can even follow us on Instagram. Instagram.com slash verybadwizards. Um, if you would like to, and we would very much appreciate, support us in the more tangible ways, you can go see those ways at our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. There you will see that you can Donate using PayPal, a one-time donation. You can shop on Amazon as you would normally, but by clicking first on our link and then buying as you would, we get a little piece of that, um, even though you don't have to pay anymore. And finally, you can become one of our Patreon supporters. And if you do that, we very much appreciate it. We love our Patreon supporters. There's a community of discussion that happens there. And you get 
uh, bonus content that uh, that you might you might enjoy. In fact, we've gotten, I think, quite a bit of of discussion and appreciation for something I didn't even listen to yet because uh, I haven't I haven't watched <laughs> the Twin Peaks <laughs> third season. And I guess you won't listen to my little bonus segment with my daughter either. Stay tuned for that, people who have watched Twin Peaks. I gotta also uh rate us on iTunes please review us on iTunes um I think that helps us reach a larger audience and there's been a lot of encroachments on iTunes from other podcasts I think all right so it seems like there's two reasons you might be afraid of death and you might have this crippling fear of death like like Dave has and one of them is that you cease to live, that you're not living anymore. So that's one problem with it. And two is just the the actual experience of dying itself. So not totally on purpose, we came across a couple things that challenge both of those desires. Um, the desire to want to keep on living and also um, the the worry that the experience of death will be bad. So the first thing we'll talk about is a an, an article on Eon, who we have sometimes on occasion sort of mocked their philosophy articles, but I thought this one was really, really good. Um, and actually, they've been very good recently. It's by Paul Sager, and it's called on going on and on and on. And it talks about a paper by Bernard Williams, a philosopher we've talked about a lot on this show, um, and a, a, an article that he wrote about why immortality would not be a good thing, why that's something that we shouldn't desire. And so that's what we'll talk about first. And then the second thing we'll talk about is... Um, a study that shows that the experience of dying is more positive than you might think. Um, okay. And I want to say, uh, after engaging in sort of quasi or squarely political discussions, we're always looking for something to lift up our spirits. So we thought death, <laughs> yeah. we thought death would be a, a very nice, very nice contrast to the misery of talking about politics. So Bernard Williams uh, starts out his essay. He has an essay called The Marcropolis Case, which you can find online. I actually looked at it. Reflections on the Tedium of Immortality. And he, he uses as an example this woman who, by the time she turned 42, so it's too late for you here, um, oh he, she drinks some sort of elixir that keeps her at that age forever, at age 42 forever. And then 300 years pass, um, and at that point she experiences everything she's wanted, and now her life is cold and empty and boring and withdrawn. She has nothing left to live for, so she stops drinking the elixir and destroys it and is able to die. And so the, the, this is the question. So if you could be, if you could have granted this desire for immortality, is that something that you sh should actually want? Right. It's very easy to just off in an offhanded way say, well, I, I want to live forever, right? Like, 
but in saying I don't want to die, you're kind of saying that, but sometimes you explicitly say that. And and in fact, belief in the afterlife is usually belief in living forever. It seems, seems pretty obvious that that would be the opposite of dying, and that's what we would want because we don't want to die. And so Williams' argument is you would not want this, and the reason is because at a certain point you would run out of what he calls categorical desires. So categorical desires are things that you want to keep on living in order that you can do it. So like I have a categorical desire to scuba dive in the Galapagos Islands. Like that's I've been wanting to do that for a very long time. I'll be pissed off if I die and I don't get to do that at some point in my life. That is a categorical desire. And then we have all these these other kinds of desires that if I happen to be alive, I would want to do. But I don't want to go on living in order to do it. So the example of this uh, in the Eon article is getting a cavity filled. Like if you're going to keep on living, yeah, you want to get the cavity filled, but you don't want to keep on living in order to get the cavity filled. It's not something that is motivating you to keep on living. So the categorical desires are the desires that motivate you to want your life to be extended. The, the contingent desires are just the desires for things knowing that your life is extended. And Williams's point is you'd run out of categorical desires. And once you've run out of categorical desires, there's nothing left for you as you anymore to motivate you. And, and that would be a dreary, alienating experience. Right. I, I can definitely catch the intuition that after a while, shit would get old, right? Like you, you would, you would want to die after a while. And that if you couldn't die, um, reminds me of Groundhog Day, the movie. Right. Like there, there is a spell in which, so he's reliving the same day. Um, there's a spell in there where he is just so, <laughs> so bored of everything that all he does is try to kill himself in various ways. Yeah. Um, and I can see immortality being a curse if that's the point you get to where where you know we're not living out the same day but given enough time you're living out the same shit over and over again eventually um and, and so it could seem unsatisfying i mean continue the paper because i don't know that this is really a, a fatal fatal objection well to, why not so and then the, i'll talk about the scheffler um yeah problem it's, i mean it it seems to me that 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 is a that's a claim that doesn't seem borne out in human experience. Like the, it's it, there is so uh, the world is finite, but there is a lot of shit to do, and yeah. there is nothing in the number, say seventy five or whatever the average age is, to indicate that like doubling that would all of a sudden or tripling it or quadrupling it, you would all of a sudden run out of things to do. Or you would cease to be able to inculcate new categorical desires. But at some point you would. Um, Yeah, so... It's okay. Like, you can... I don't think William's point depends on it being 300 years old. It could be 3,000. It could be... Yeah. 
I don't know. I actually was having a, a, an argument with, with my housemate about this last night because I, I was saying event, I was actually defending Williams. Um, but in, it is possible that so long as there are things to do and so long as there are other people around that you could simply, just like we go through, right, uh, 75 years of doing different shit without getting bored, that you could imagine that as the world changes, you could just continue to do this at least until the world ends. Um, right. Like, think um, about it. if you're alive 2,000 years ago, the world is completely different than now. Right. So there's right. all, yeah. So the question is, can you generate enough new categorical desires continually to to make that worthwhile so then i guess williams's response to that would be but it's not you anymore at that point there's no you that's keeping going there's just a new person with new categorical desires yeah perhaps but 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 uh i don't know that that wouldn't also apply in this parfidian way to life at in across 75 years right like it's very very possible that it, that it is just tr- a true claim that Tamler, you know, at your age is almost is almost certainly not you in that sense as Tamler age twelve, right? Because you have so many different categorical desires, and so I think that the continuity of self might not depend on that. Um, I I would be comfortable just just in having whatever if it's illusory then then it's illusory but but that continuation of self over time yeah um so that i actually have the memory of 300 years ago and that i used to have different desires so then it's almost an empirical claim yeah that that they're just at some point you're just going to get sick of the living right now and that gets that gets to what i think turns on more of a mathematical claim that I don't know what to think of because I'm not smart enough. But if they're right, like infinity is just a really, really wacky concept. But if you live eternally, will you end up repeating everything? Will like, will you exhaust the possibility of things to do um, just by mathematical definition? That is, will you, right? So like, in infinite universes, right. like there, there is, there just exists a universe with like one slightly different thing. Um, is there in living eternally? W- would would you experience everything there is to experience multiple times? Yeah, this is like the eternal recurrence, like Nietzsche. Yeah, thing, yeah, which we and did not eat, like turn into a porn thing, but I suppose you could. <laughs> Con- condemned to jerk off to the same thing you better pick like, well yeah. you better choose well <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah yeah and, and that turns on like right so so it's hard to nail down that concept of infinity and it does still seem to be contingent on where you're living and like are you around other things because I, I take it that no <laughs> that the thought of just floating around as a conscious creature in the void even that's though not, in some yeah. sense you're assuming that's like horrible. <laughs> um, should we talk about Scheffler's? Yeah. So, and and actually we, we could do this book at some point. It's a very short book. Um, uh, Samuel Scheffler from NYU has suggested that the real problem with the fantasy of immortality is that it doesn't make sense as a coherent desire. Scheffler points out that human life is intimately structured by the fact that it has a fixed, even if usually unknown, time limit. 
We all start with a birth, then pass through many stages of life before definitely ending in death. In turn, Scheffler argues, everything that we value and thus can coherently desire in an essentially human life must take as a given the fact that we are temporally bounded beings. Uh, we can imagine what it would be like to be immortal, but it it doing so we will obscure a basic truth that because death is a fixed fact everything that human beings value makes sense only in light of our time being finite our choices being limited and our each getting only so many goes before it's over right so i think there's something that's deeply true about this you know and we've talked about this in 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 terms of sort of the sense of of meaning in life um, there is something about the knowledge that life is limited um, that creates the bonds that we have. So, so, and and we get a sense of meaning out of knowing that we have a limited time to exist. I, it's, it sounds right to me that that is such a fundamental part of our existence that it's hard to imagine what it's like to be outside of that and what it would mean to have uh, those desires. I think that when I think of immortality, I just think my template is just this life over and over, like all of my desires here, but now just keep multiplying it, just keep multiplying, keep multiplying it. I can see where, you know, and in, in fiction sometimes uh, where there are, people who become eternal beings they stop caring about all sort of temporal things that's that's the issue i mean like so think about doing something like working on a project writing a grant writing a book um if you knew you were going to live forever is there any motivation to do those things now Right. Paradoxically, you have you're living forever and you're by dint of living forever, you're losing the capacity to have that those fulfilling, meaningful tasks. Yeah. Those things. I I need to get this done now, you know, and I need to now it could just be that you need to get it done now because otherwise, you know, you won't get a good raise and you'll be less comfortable for this. But that's that tends to be not right why we do these things like it's just our whole category of desiring might depend and valuing might depend on the fact that we know we're not going to be here forever right and and right what you said about like yeah maybe you're doing the project just because you need a paycheck just because you need to sleep in a bed with a roof over your head that is just very much the contingent desires like no one wants to live because they want to be able to pay their bills and have a roof over their head like that's not (laughs) Yeah, so like so in this sense but it's it's different in the sense that it's not like Williams thought you could still have categorical desires but maybe you'd run out of them. In this case, you wouldn't even you would, right. you would have a hard time having categorical desires in the first place because Right, because the yeah, because the very things that we desire are are intrinsically linked to the kind of existence that we have. Do you think that this matters like how many people, if anybody, is also immortal? So, yeah, like, I mean, I was thinking about that. But yeah, because belief in the afterlife, say the Christian traditional Christian view of heaven, is that you're with family and friends and all the good people, and you're all living forever, and you can all interact with each other, um, and there's some infinity of existence with other creatures who are also infinite. I don't. It's so hard for me to conceive of that. Uh, that I, I find myself th- this actually it 
doesn't seem at all comforting to think I'm going to live forever with the same people. <laughs> You're still like, we're going to be hard. doing this forever. I mean, shit already feels like forever when <laughs> we record. It feels like eternity. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. So but. here's here's a couple of things that would make me definitely not want to live forever, I think. Um you know, even setting aside the considerations more practically. Like, if you got old and you're, like, just getting decrepit, like, <laughs> right. but you're still living, that would be, like... Right, it's like being a... It's like the, the tragedy of being made a vampire when you're elderly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I think, like, if... Like, I don't want to, like, watch Eliza die, like, as an old woman, and and then, right. like, her kids die, and then, you know... Well, that's that's because you're not properly detached in the Buddhist way. Yeah. Um, no, but that but that's a, that's the point, I think, in a lot of these sort of speculative fiction, whether it's vampires or some mm-hmm. other kind of immortal, um, they often express this you know, the first round of friends and family that dies off, right? And then you make new attachments and they die off. You ba- you're basically condemned to watch everything you ever cared about uh, get old and die. And at that point, it seems to me the only solution is really to find another source of meaning and devalue the life of any finite being. Right. Yeah. And, th- and that, so the Greek gods are another good representation, like a real exploration of what the difference would be if you were immortal versus mortal and so the gods are immortal they live forever humans are mortals but they have attachments to the mortals they have um you know they they have sex with them they they uh fall in love with them they fight with them and it's i was talking about this because we're reading the iliad in my great books class human situation with the students of what that like how does that make them feel about the humans? And so on one hand, it by the, makes by the them, way, I, I hear that book is epic. Get it? Uh, <laughs> I do. Yes. The, uh, on the one hand, it's like, you know, it's, it's sort of sad for them to see the people that they love get old and die, including some of their kids. But it also does seem like it makes them detached from the humans in a way that they'll use them more as playthings sometimes and like set them off against each other maybe because you can't get too attached to right yeah it makes the gods seem cruel but i always thought that that the pantheon of gods in in not just the greeks but you know in norse mythology as well I always thought like that's weird that they are being so human like that they're interacting right you you would think that being eternal and invulnerable and all powerful would mean that that why would you care about these little cockroaches running around yeah. and so they're like I guess before this conversation I just thought well that was just a it's because we have such a bad template right we're just completely you know anthropomorphizing the gods which is I think the original use of the term anthropomorphism was was attributing human-like qualities to gods because because we're not capable really of of thinking of the existence of an eternal creature who would you know what their desires would be so we just gave them our desires um and that doesn't make sense unless they really are just you know like like a little kid burning ants with a magnifying glass uh, but they, yeah, right. It wouldn't make sense that they would, 
that you would create gods like that or that those right. would kind of evolve because, yeah, that's just terrible. Um, there has to be something that they're providing you and some attachment that they have of you to even think about them as any different from just other forces you don't understand. Right. It's it's interesting because God as an eternal being, like some monotheistic God who created the universe, given this conversation, it really does become unclear to me why it would ever care to create anything. Like what, you know, it's like, let me create these things that are a sliver of time in in my infinite existence and and make them build buildings and sing to me. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah, it seems so weird. Like why would he care or she care about that, right? Or she uh, chilled. <laughs> no, I'm just I'm just just. Yeah. Um covering your bases. Uh, yeah, no, I but again, like I think the the monotheistic Christian especially God is supposed to be a little bit something that you can't fully conceive of that's just infused yeah. with love and like all the yeah. other hippie stuff. Right, right. But here's a counter to the claim that you wouldn't want to get old and just see everything that you cared about die. Um, pets, right? Like, it's more of a counter for me because you actually are convinced you shouldn't have <laughs> pets for some reason. But I love my pets and I'm grateful to have them and I know that they're going to die and I'll watch them die and it's terrible but then i'll get a new one and then so why couldn't you just do that like the and, and i have deep love for my pets like i'm not it's this isn't right. a reductio ad absurdum of this view i love my pets very very much right uh, that's a that's a really good example and i'm i'm trying to think what what the difference is i there there is something i don't know if it's relevant but there is something different about <clears throat> pets in that they really are just these creatures that give you unconditional love and and right. your life is fairly simple and it's not that I don't want to say we're less invested in their life but it's definitely a less complex uh interaction that you have where you're where you're yeah. struggling to 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 cooperate in some broad sense with the conflicting interests and desires of someone you love and and work out all of the kinks in your relationship and to keep doing that and having people die it sort of reminds me of the despair that some people feel after they've had multiple relationships that ended um with nothing permanent coming out of them they get some sort of fatigue yeah uh, the you know like what why am i going to start this next relationship if if it's just going to end in arguing or whatever right. uh, and and it and it seems it's it seems different but right it seems like i would grow fatigued i agree with you you could have 10 dogs your whole life each of them living 12 to 15 right. years and this doesn't seem as miserable as as watching your children die over and over again cuz <laughs> but i mean also part of that is we we know the lifespan of a dog, right? Yeah, so right. it's going to be much worse. It would be much worse for us if our child dies if than if a dog dies. But that's because we know the normal lifespan of a I mean, it's not the only reason, but it's one right. reason is we know the normal lifespan of a dog and we know the normal lifespan of a human. And so I don't know if we can imagine how we'd feel about watching 
our daughter die, our daughters die when they were 88 years old or something right. like that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. It maybe like, is it a different, totally different analysis if the question is, do you want to live for 5,000 years and then die or do you want to live uh, yeah, forever? It's weird because I, I, I have this weird intuition that seems contradictory, which is I never want to die, but I don't want to live forever. And and in this essay, um, uh, Sager, is that how you pronounce his name? D- describes this uh, character from a Sanskrit uh, poem where the there's a warrior who's granted this boon of, quote unquote, death upon desire. So he can die whenever he wants. He's immortal, but he could just choose to die whenever he wants. Yeah. And that's, it seems like that's what I would want. Yeah, to be able to choose when you die. Right. Um, and, and I think that, that, that my intuition that who wants to live 3,000 years would probably be defeated if you, you got a 3,000-year-old and asked them if they want to keep living. They probably would be like, yeah, I want to keep living in much the same way that like when you're young, you're like, oh, I don't want to be whatever, 85 years old. Um, but as the 80s approach, you're like, eh, I mean, I don't want to die. <laughs> I just, I just but then there living. does come a certain point where you're like, I don't like you're looking at the person and you're like, I don't know. Like, I just don't want to be that. Yeah, but I, but that's that's because life, the quality of life, really goes down, right? I yeah. think that if you had right. a spry, a spry one hundred year old with all their wits about them and no major physical problems, yeah. you wouldn't. You, there's no reason to want them to die, or that they would want to die. I yeah. think, right? Save for or no, but that you suicide. would, yeah. It's more from the younger perspective. You say to yourself, "I don't want to be that," and you start right. telling your family, like, <laughs> yeah. Like I, you have to like not let me get to that state, right? Right. You know, there's there's an interesting medical problem, right? Uh, or at least a a policy issue here where people are often uh, told to give advanced directives, like what what like w- do you want to live if you're on life support or given certain contingencies, would you want to 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 die or would you want to be resuscitated? And so people make people, you know, write up a legal document with these desires. But there there is research showing that what you think you want when you're healthy and young versus when you're old and in bed or sick even in bed is very different. Your desires really change. And it's unclear who the true like you know, who who is the authority here? David Time One, who is making a healthy decision, like, you know, people say, like, I would never want to never want to live if i were i don't know say paralyzed from the neck down right but then people who do get paralyzed right they probably go through some depression but it's not like they're they're probably no different suicidal rate they bounce back yeah so i i want to say that to me the ultimate is this this boon of death upon desire where whenever i decide I also sometimes think like, you know, some vampires do this, right? They'll just go in their coffin for like a hundred years, right? When you're getting kind of bored with things. Yeah. Like, <laughs> just, just, to, just be able to switch like, things up, like just come out in a totally new era. <laughs> yeah. I, sometimes I want to do that now. Just like voluntary, like mild coma for a week because it's just been so <laughs> shitty. So like just a getting a good night's sleep sometimes does that. <laughs> yeah. Where you like like I can't deal with this paper and all right, so you go to sleep, wake up early, next day it's like, oh, this is easy. Like what was yeah. the problem? 
Yeah. yeah. I, although I haven't, haven't had that in a while. But yes. <laughs> uh, um, so that's the thing about the Scheffler piece. He's saying that, like, all of a sudden we're granted immortality. Like, we're, that, like, shatters our identity. Or at least this is one way of understanding it. Like, all of a sudden we've been obliterated just with that knowledge because we don't understand life our the who we are uh and what we're about has been entirely shaped by the finiteness of human life it's been premised on that and so now that we don't have that it's like we're not us anymore but i think your point like we're not us anyway like in 70 (laughs) years and then you know 10 years so a lot of these identity things it's not clear that they're getting at a specific problem with immortality right i don't know if it's just in principle violating what it means to be human to live for very long periods of time when it comes to like thousands and thousands of years or you know even any given moment if you find me and you ask me do you want to die i probably would say no right well, I don't know. Like that's the question in the Williams piece. Yeah, you might yeah. at some point. She she had that. She could yeah. live, and then she died, and then she just said, "Okay, that's it. I'm done." Yeah. I mean, it, would you take that right now? Take what? That just years? a button, like a, that elixir, where you can uh, essentially, as long as you keep drinking it, you'll be alive. But if you stop, then you'll die. Yeah, I don't see why not, right? I mean, this is death death upon desire, sort of. You know, maybe it would get to a point where where everybody I've ever known is completely dead. But I kind of think that I would have, you know, in a in a ship of Theseus way, like I am, I have continuity of relationships with new people over time, and and it doesn't seem to me to be an in principle objection. But I mean, Only, like, uh, would you, because knowing that, would you, would your attachments not be as deep? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. And, and I think this is where your pet analogy comes in, right? So, so you live, say, 80 years, your pets live 10 years. I don't think that it devalues your relationship. I, I, I don't, at least in principle, like, I don't know. I, I don't see, given... Given the way we are now and the way we deal with people dying um, in our lives and the way we start kind of just keep on, I don't see anything. There's no period of time in which I can say, no, this in principle will violate even what it means to have an attachment. I feel like we'll just continue doing what we're doing. Like, I feel like the worst that would happen is you just sort of enter into a the sort of depression or suicidal depression that people enter into all the time now and you may or you may not i don't think that there's anything really about living for a very long time that would start doing that so Um, here's a question on that point so i was just thinking what if dogs lived for 80 years instead of 10 years maybe we would be more attached to them than we are like imagine just having a dog like i have a dog now that i've had since i was five like that's like it's as much as as deep as my connection is to my dogs right now. Maybe it's shallower than it would Wait, you be. You have a dog now that I also that had. Have... No, I'm saying if. Oh, oh, oh. Yeah. <laughs> like so what you said was you don't think yeah, that yeah, it yeah. would necessarily devalue because look at pets. It yeah. doesn't seem to devalue our attachment to them that they are. Right. But then I was just suggesting maybe 
if they lived longer, we would be even more attached to them. So, in fact, it does devalue our attachment to them, the fact that they only live for 10 years. Yeah, and it's an interesting question because I can see the intuition going the other way where given that you you know um, that you only have 10 years with them, that you right. you just, you really, and this is why I guess, I mean, the, that was your original point. And I, and I guess my response was the relationship we have with pets is very different. Like a dog, you got you got a good 10, 12 years with them. You can always go and you know, as they start getting older, you just start giving them more love because you know your time is limited and you're just like, you know, you're just pampering them and you're just. You become a more giving lover. <laughs> I, so, so I don't know. There is something, you know, there is a comfort in the uncertainty of knowing when anybody you care about is going to die. I think that that really, right, we kind of have a sense with pets, right? There is a plus or minus a few years and that is within our lifetime. And, and even then it's hard because you always think they could go a little bit longer. But with human beings, it would be really hard to become really good friends with somebody who, who had a lifespan of 10 years. <laughs> yeah. Like, would you enter a relationship into a relationship with somebody who you knew was going to die? For sure was going to die. Yeah. Like maybe a death row inmate. You know, this is getting really morbid, but, and there are people who have that situation. Yeah. They know their, their husband or wife is going to die in five years. And I don't think. I think number one, but see, this is forced on them. Yeah, but like, yeah. All, it's they already enter, they're not choosing to enter into a relationship with. But once they know about it, they're glad they know about it. Yeah, like let's say I was I was asking I I talked about this in my class too. If I knew that I only had one year to live, would I tell Eliza? Would I tell my wife Jen? And and I thought and I said in class, I don't think I would tell my daughter but i'd probably tell my wife and then i came home and i sort of and my daughter was like i would be so fucking pissed at you if you didn't she didn't think she said fuck right she said i'd be so (laughs) mad at you if you didn't tell me because of all the times that like you know she was doing some bullshit instead of spending time so just instead of spending time with me in the in the last year so as devastating as it would be she would want to know that so that she can make the most out of it but i think that might generalize to maybe our knowledge of that makes us want to make the most of our time on earth. And if you take that away from us, that uncertainty about when we're going to die or the finite limit that we know we're going to die in, then we no longer have that kind of urgency to propel us. Right. You know, it reminds me, I'm, I'm uh, uh, rewatching The Sopranos for the nth time. And there is, it's so fucking good. I think it was second season uh, where Tony Soprano has just entered into just real, real deep depression. And the thing that snaps him out of it is the attempted, the hit that his uncle put out on him. He survives it narrowly and he's just like, boom, he's just kicked right out of that depression, right? He's just all of a sudden just happy to be alive. This is the story of the Sopranos that I think everybody you get comfortable and thinking you're going to be around forever nothing bad's going to happen and then and then something snaps you out of it temporarily you know maybe eternally uh, this is the thing is that if you know you're never going to die you both have 
the certainty that the people you love have a finite existence. So you might want to create a deeper connection with them. And you would do that over and over again, much right. like a pet. But on the other hand, you don't ever have that sense of urgency for yourself. Right. right? For about anything. For, for anything. There's no, there's no seize the day. Yeah. Every day is like another day. Yeah. That's why I don't even know if I would want to take that elixir. Like, or, you know, have the elixir because I do think a lot of the ways in which I approach life and enjoy life involves that knowledge that, you know, this could be, it sounds cliche, but yeah, seize the day. Like, you don't know if this day will be your last. You take that away. I do know, like, for sure that this day, this week is not going to be my last or this month or this year. Yeah, that maybe that does take away some of the visceral way i i understand myself and i understand what i'm doing right it's it's really hard to to try to intuit what that does to us the only thing i can think of is you know when you're really young you kind of feel immortal invincible and and i don't know if that you know if that has a a substantive influence on the way that you approach life but you really do feel that yeah, you just don't think you're going to die. You know yeah. in some abstract sense that you are, but you don't feel it at any level. But right. it, but on the other hand, you can completely enjoy life and there is <laughs> Right, a, exactly, yeah. So that's sort of a counter to what I was suggesting, which is it doesn't seem to bother kids. But then that could right. also be something about being kids. Yeah, I know. That that's exactly. It's they're like they're not worried about anything. They like they're just Oh god. It's almost sad. it's it's very sad when the anxiety starts creeping in. I remember when my daughter was a toddler. Um she loved it when I would like punch the accelerator. Mm-hmm. Right? And, like it was just so fun for her. She'd ask me like do this sometimes on on an empty street. I would just be going slow and then for like 5 seconds like and just take off and she would feel her body and then at some point she was like don't like don't do that dad like she was like really upset with me for doing it and and i realized that in between those two times she had realized that existence ends (laughs) right and And that you were like a really bad dangerous driver that i'm uh yeah (laughs) should we talk about the other the actual process of dying yeah, this is a recent paper uh, published by a set of psychologists, among them uh, Kurt Gray, whom some of our listeners might know, Adam Waits, Michael Norton, um, and I think two students who I, I'm not ignoring on purpose. I just don't know them. Amelia Gorenson and Ryan Ritter called Dying is Unexpectedly Positive. And this this is an interesting idea. I mean, there, the, there are limitations to the method in which you do this, but one of the reasons I liked this paper was because they use pretty interesting sources of data to try to answer the question is the process of dying really as bad as you think it might be and they did broadly they did two things they looked at blog posts of people who were dying from a terminal illness um, and and who eventually died so they had a record of of blog posts over time from cancer patients and people with ALS um, people who who generally still had their cognitive faculties intact, but who knew they were going to die and who who kept kept a blog. And they coded those entries for positivity or negativity using a program to, that counts up positive or negative uh, emotion terms and also having people um, code them 
uh, and rating them for how positive or negative. And then they had uh, people write fake blog posts pretending as if they were terminally ill. And they had people code those as well. And really, so this is just demonstrating a prediction error that people, when when they write a uh, hypothetical blog post about what it must be like to be dying, it is more negative, right? There are more negative terms and there are fewer positive terms. And what they argue is that our intuition that the process of dying is full of negative affect is is wrong, at least relative um, to what what people actually seem to, to be expressing. The second way that they looked at this was by looking at the last words of, of death row inmates. Um, and again, the intuition being that it would, they would be sad or angry or, or bit bitter or whatever, that, that knowing that you're about to die with 100% certainty in this case, yeah. um, would, would be, they would express negativity. And in fact, compared to people who, who were asked, what would you say if you were a death row inmate about to die? Um, those words were also more positive. Um, now that they, they say that the there's uh, a lot of religion that influences right. um, the death row inmates, and maybe also, but yeah, I mean that's it's interesting. Uh, I want to read their last paragraph. It says, "Given the growing aging population, this work has potential to inform the contentious political debate surrounding palliative care." Currently, the medical system is geared toward avoiding death, an avoidance that is often motivated by views of death as terrible and tragic. This focus is understandable, given cultural narratives of death's negativity, but our results suggest that death is more positive than people expect. Meeting the Grim Reaper may not be as grim as it seems. So, it turns out, like, you know, they want to use these results to at least suggest that we should... Uh, reallocate resources in medicine based right. on mean, this idea. Yeah, I mean, I I agree with the conclusion in the sense that I think that that we are so hyper focused on extending life, yes, uh, often at the expense of quality of life, and that this is something that is perhaps counterintuitively to many people uh, a, a net bad. Yeah, um, I don't know whether these results. No. Right. I mean, one one <laughs> issue with these results is is you know if you're really fucking pissed off that you're gonna die, I don't know that you're keeping a cancer blog, right? Like, right. I, I <laughs> there's a exactly. selection bias here where presumably the prison, the death row inmates are don't suffer from this, right? Everybody who's gonna die gets the chance to say last words, um, but it is sort of a different, a very different thing. What what your last words are right before you get executed there's a different motivational goal and and in both cases these are communicative they're not necessarily reflective of their internal state they are communications that they're making to the outward world and i can very much see like if i were dying i would not pepper my communications to my family with negativity <laughs> bitterness and yeah yeah like, like anger. Fuck this temporal existence like if only i had a few more years even though i might be feeling that yeah and so so it's unclear to me that this is is a measure of of what they think they're measuring uh, well yeah so there's two problems there there's the problem that the selection bias of just that you would bother to write anything at all especially public uh, yeah, suggests that you have a more positive feeling 
I'm right. Not, if you're I'm very not. depressed, you're not writing yeah, a blog. If you're just you're depressed not and angry. There's no reason to write. You're not going to be motivated to write. And then there's the question of even if you set that aside, is what you write expressive of how you really That's feel? That's right. Yeah. That's right. And yeah. I think there's, yeah. I mean, the death row case is clear. Like, Often you're trying to atone, you're trying to talk to right. the, the victim's families, um, you are motivated by certain religious concerns, and... And it's all that's left of your legacy in that moment, too. Yeah. It's like, right. what are you going to leave the world with? Right. And <laughs> I guess know. the cancer blog would be the same kind of thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so yeah. Right. I, do they address the selection bias issue? I, did I did not, I did not read them addressing that, and because that seems, and, uh, yeah, yeah, pretty um, devastating right. as a critique, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, I, not, yeah, I didn't think of it. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't see. I could, I could have missed something, but they certainly don't discuss it in any yeah. in any sort of systematic way, and I don't think they talk about it in in the general uh, discussion. Um, you know, and maybe they would say, well, still, it says something that compared to people who are predicting writing a cancer blog or an ALS blog or whatever, right. that they are still more positive than what That's those true. people, right? Yeah. And and I that that to me seems right. Like maybe we, maybe we think that it's going to be more negative or maybe we think that you wouldn't even have it in you to write a positive thing at that time in life when people actually do have it in them to communicate positivity. But I just don't know whether that's, as we just said, whether that's actually evidence that they are feeling positivity. Yeah. Um, it's still an interesting finding that they are more likely to communicate positivity. They, they have an interesting, I think it's just in a footnote, um, they were interested in whether or not just your average person could tell the difference between a real uh, and a fake. Yeah, uh, no, I didn't. And, and people couldn't. People people we're not better than chance at guessing whether it was real or fake so at least it passed muster it's interesting Um, uh exercise actually to write a blog post about dying when you don't think you are dying it (laughs) really is and i wonder uh, yeah i i wonder you know they mentioned this uh this body of work and in fact the program that they used to to count up the words and to to count up the emotion words was developed originally by a researcher uh, named James Pennebaker at UT Austin who who showed this effect, um, and he's shown it many times, that the process of writing itself is, uh, is therapeutic. So, yeah. so the classic finding is that you go, people who have been through a traumatic experience, if they just write down their traumatic experience, they actually have better physical and mental health outcomes, um, you know, in whenever time to measurement is months down the line than people who did not write it down. So they're randomly assigned to write or not write. And so he was interested in figuring out what what it was about the writing itself that was that was doing the work. And I think last I checked, at least his 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 argument is that it forces you to sort of organize your thoughts in a way that um, because you have to organize your thoughts in order to communicate them linguistically and put them down on paper. um, What that's doing, that's sort of cleaning up house in your, in your cognitive 
in your in your mental world and that that is doing good work that is doing some work toward uh toward giving you clarity and understanding and that that is that's good for you um i mean i totally feel that not from trauma fortunately i'm lucky but like when i write lectures that i am just learning what i truly think about something like learning a lot just by the act act active process of writing it and trying to convey it to people so that's right and you realize the gaps in your knowledge when you try to 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 explain something yeah right it it really is forcing you to to dig deeper and figure out what exactly you're trying to say and and i can see how how that might just be good for you when it's something that you know in case of trauma things like ptsd you're you are having a reliving of these experiences over and over and over again and it's a jumble um and it's it's confusing and and emotional and just the act of of organizing your thoughts might help sort of alleviate that the confusion at least of the confusion is the best isn't the best word but the the i don't know the impact of the of the disorganized emotions and thoughts you have about the event um, yeah, that's interesting. So, you should maybe do a uh, that paper. Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, do that uh, paper. Would be interesting. Yeah. Yeah. yeah All right. Should we wrap up? Hopefully, or else it'll this episode yes. will become traumatic for our listeners. And we'll have to, and we definitely won't write about it. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. Well, uh, are, do you feel better about dying now? I was going to make a joke that no, but I I, yeah. I actually feel a little better. <laughs> Good. Maybe podcasting also helps. Uh, That's right. It, it helps me want death more. It helps me. <laughs> so some multiple mechanisms. It helps you prefer death to just keeping recording. Exactly. <laughs> uh, anyway, I, to all our listeners, I hope you don't die. Yes. And if we're not dead, we will... Uh, see you next episode for our 150th episode holy, holy shit. shit damn we didn't plan it let's let's do nothing special <laughs> did sisyphus celebrate his 150th roll up the rock <laughs> i don't Great think question. that's where yeah i don't think that's where meaning is derived <laughs> and for those of you who have watched the what's probably the greatest artistic achievement of the last 25, 30, 40 years, Twin Peaks. Stay tuned as Eliza Summers will join me and she's just going to solve it. She's just going to wrap it up in a tidy little bow, put us all out of our misery trying to figure out what the hell happened. So stay tuned after the music. Okay, and I am here 
Happy to be joined by Eliza Summers, my daughter, who you hear every episode right at the beginning of giving you a warning about how inappropriate we're going to be. She recorded that when she was seven. She is now 14, uh, just starting her freshman year in high school. How's that going, Lai? Um, thank you, Tamler. It's pretty good. <laughs> Anyway, we are going to be, or she is going to be sharing her theory about Twin Peaks and Fire Walk With Me and um, the essentially David Lynch-related material that we have been obsessed with now for over a year, right? It's been about a little over a year. We've been obsessed with it. It's pretty much all you and I talk about. We just watched Lost Highway last night again. So, so don't listen to this unless you have seen all this stuff. And if you want to hear more of my thoughts, way more of my thoughts than you'd ever want to hear, probably um, you could become a Patreon member because there is a three-hour recording. So, Eliza, solve Twin Peaks The Return. Put me out of my misery not figuring out how it all fits together. Okay. So here's the thing I noticed. In, I feel like in episode 16, at the end of episode 16, um, when in the roadhouse with Audrey, and the end of episode 18, when um, Cooper or Richard and Carrie Page are at the Palmer house, there are a lot of, like a lot, a lot of parallels. First, they've, they've both achieved their goals of, Audrey just got out of the house and Cooper... Um, and went to the roadhouse. And right? went to the roadhouse, because that's what she wanted to do. She wanted to go to the roadhouse. And Cooper, like, found Laura and took her home. And then something from real life is involved. Um, like, in episode 16, when the announcer says, Ladies and gentlemen, Audrey's dance. That's what the song was actually called in real life. Right, um, on the soundtrack. On the soundtrack. And... Um, and then in episode 18, it's the actual owner of the that house in real life. Um, oh, you've never even said that to me before. That idea. the No, the Audrey's dance uh, being part of sort of an allusion to what's actually real. And also Edward Sev- Severinsen is yeah. his real name instead yeah. of Ed- Eddie Vedder. And then Vetter. Valero is like, yeah. it, is in right. reality. Yes, okay, um, interesting. And then something traumatic and like and scary happens in sixteen. It's the the fight while she's dancing and she's like sucked into the past and then it it like it violently like takes her out of it. Mm-hmm. And in episode sixteen, you mean eighteen? Yeah, episode eighteen. Yeah. Um, I think it's when the house slash Sarah Palmer screams Laura, and oh, oh, I mean it could also be where Sarah Palmer is not there. His goal yeah, is to bring her right, back home right. and nobody knows who he's talking about. Yeah, it's right? not as violent as this episode 16, but I think it yeah. still works as a parallel. It's just something that like takes them out of, like yeah. they're expecting, like Audrey's just expecting to make it through her dance and Cooper's expecting right. to, it's, yeah. It's um, real life intruding. Real life on... intruding on the Twin Peaks fan- like fantasy. Yeah. Um, and then... They both have almost like the same exact look on their face when Audrey's running back to Charlie and she says, like, get me out of here. And then when Cooper says, what year is it? They have like the same exact look on their face, like of like total, utter confusion. 
that I think is almost like when you wake up from a dream and you're like kind of disoriented. Yeah. Um, and then in episode 16, this is where it gets different. Audrey wakes up in a mental institution, institution and then like says what we're all thinking. What? Like, what? <laughs> and then, um, but in episode 18, um, it cuts to the Red Room. And and, that, and almost like he's beginning another cycle. Yes, like, well, we don't know about the cycles yet. Yeah. I haven't talked about it yet. He's, he's starting gonna go, over. He's starting over. The and maybe room, yeah. she's not starting over. Right, it's like he's pushed away reality. But another parallel, though, is at, in the credits of episode 16, they play Audrey's dance backwards. Like how they, like, because the Red Room, how it's made is um you like back you you say it backwards and then play it forward so that's almost like the real life version of the red room and and then the parallel to that would be the red room but i don't know totally know how to interpret that i just noticed that as another parallel um which kind of makes me believe that both audrey and cooper are stuck in this in these cycles of having something they can't let go of and like like projecting a reality um so that they can relive it over and over and over again and with audrey i think we saw the last cycle and then her waking up in cooper i think we saw at least three cycles and then him not waking up right um he still has a way to go yeah. to wake up but uh, but the audrey story is an example of what happens maybe it's if a, you do wake up and then the nadine story is like a success story of that it's like um the nadine of shoveling yourself out of the shit right and um that's what audrey and cooper need to do and so it's almost like nadine and then audrey in the middle and then cooper right. it's like Nadine shoveled herself out of the shit by finally recognizing that she has been possessing a, um, somebody th and keeping somebody that she loved from being happy. Yeah. And she couldn't admit that to herself because that's a terrible thing to admit yeah. that you're preventing the person you love from being happy. And then she did, and that was full success. Audrey... So Audrey has she is she like where is she in the shit like is so she she I think she, in reality she's in a mental institution right and um she she has the things that she can't let go of that she needs to shovel herself out of is the just the need to escape from she's always had like she's always wanted to leave Twin Peaks in this in this last cycle it was leaving the house and I think it's just I want to leave the mental institution that's part of it like she just wants to escape and so she she's on the pathway to escaping she's escaped her illusion um and we just we haven't seen yet her but she has to find a way to be happy right. with a kind of domestic life right. that she might have with some Which real is the life same husband as yeah. Which uh, I think, so one of the cycles for sure is the Dougie cycle where he's stuck in this 
kind of clue, I mean, totally clueless. He doesn't know where he is, but he has a wife and he has a kid. And then he wakes up as Cooper and then destroys Bob and bad Cooper. And I think that's part of his like subconscious saying, this is what you want. Because Dougie, we, we, we hate at first and then we fall in love. We think he's so great. And we, it's, it's almost like the original Twin Peaks. Like all the characters are lovable. Everyone's like such a good guy or everyone's such a good person. And, um, and that's just like everything works out. And kind of and Cooper just... acknowledges that by sending another Dougie home. He wants them to have a happy ending, but he can't. He can't yet just do that for himself. So is the is the idea that everybody has this kind of fractured subconscious, part of which is trying to keep them trapped, yes. and part of which is trying to escape. Yes, and for Audrey, because when you see her. Um, she would always see she she's almost fighting with herself like she always has a different kind of and I the part of her that wants to stay at the house is the part that wants to stay in the illusion and the part of her that wants to leave the house and go to the roadhouse is the part of her that wants to wake up from the illusion and she's she's constantly fighting so that's complicated though because going to the roadhouse in some ways is going oh so is the dance like a so she got to the roadhouse is the dance then like a last gasp attempt to pull her back it's into not the a illusion good thing. we thought it might have been a good thing when we yeah. saw it but it's not it's it's the last attempt like no stay and then and so she and then she takes that she goes back to the and she right. and she falls into the so past. She almost gets she, lured and then back. The, and then the last attempt from the other side is the fight, and that throws her out of it, and that wakes her up. Yeah. Right. And so, so for Audrey, then wh- what she's going for? So Nadine, when she's fully out of the shit, like you said, mm-hmm. like she even says, I think at one point, she, like yeah. I'm so happy. Yeah. Like she has found happiness by liberating it. Yes. What's happiness for Audrey? Is it going to is it going to be to be satisfied with her husband? Do we really think her husband is that guy? It doesn't seem like a happy Audrey, even no. if she accepts that she can't escape, you know, the town or that she like it doesn't. Is that going to ever? Or, or maybe it is. Maybe that's the best that life has to offer for Audrey. I like. I don't know. I don't know what happiness because it's always been her thing is to um, to she's always wanted to leave. She's always been like wanting something that she can't have. And so I don't like I don't know what happiness is for her. It could be just leaving Twin Peaks. That's possible. Um, But it's also it also I think she takes it. She doesn't know. I don't think she knows either. She just has to take it one step of the time and break free of this illusion because that is staying in the shit. It's not shoveling yourself out of it. Um, yeah. And one thing, just to, another parallel that I thought of, when Cooper and Audrey both are in that moment that you described earlier where they're, they've been shocked and they're realizing, all of a sudden both of them show their age. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, Laura, uh, sorry, I, uh, Audrey has just been dancing in that way that she kind of danced and she was getting into yeah, it when she was Yeah, she looked like her old self. Yeah, and then, um, and then Cooper was like, are you Sarah Palmer? And then like, yeah, you know, he was kind of, yeah, are you, no, 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 to the, to the woman at uh, the house, to uh, yeah. the woman. That, and then both of them are just shocked back, not just into reality, but also into like how old they actually are. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And that's like, I, I've always noticed, or I've always thought of like TV show, um, like TV and like us watching metaphors. And that's definitely one of them is David Lynch is like, they're old. They're not these old characters. And that's something yeah. that is definitely clear in that and part. it's us so then it's also a criticism of us we want them to be There's back a lot in the of cycle. criticisms of us yeah it's like part it's a, partly our fault that they're trapped in these cycles yeah totally like we're 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 forcing them to be these characters and cooper's so into being this character that he can't he can't do it and audrey's closer okay and think how happy we were when Cooper's 100%. I am the FBI. Yes, and that's Kev- so great. The music and yeah. like, yeah. We're complicit in keeping him right. trapped in that cycle. But um, what he needs to do... Okay, I, I'm going to explain the situation that I think he's in. Um, he did something bad um, 25 years ago. Like raping Diane. I think he actually did rape Diane. Combined with he couldn't save um, Laura or his um, his partner's wife or Annie, depending... Caroline, right? Yeah, Caroline or Annie, depending how real you think Annie is. Um, and he, he also, he could have saved Laura because he knew about Teresa Banks and he had a suspicion that Bob was going to strike again, but he couldn't save her. And the reason I think that Laura is in the middle of this whole show is because she's combined with she was raped and he's she's someone that he couldn't save. So she's like all of his problems in one person. And so he can't he can't deal with all of those things combined together. And he's driven himself crazy trying to save her again. And and he's convinced himself that he's only all good Cooper or all bad Cooper. He can't he can't be somewhat he can't be both of them. Right, because he can't make sense of the fact that that he did something that was so bad. bad. He thought he was a good person. Yeah, right. And um, that's why the Black Lodge is like you can't you can't have two people you can't have both of you out at the same time. Like that's why they said he was stuck in twenty five there for twenty five years. And I think so. That's his projection of a Black yeah. Lodge rule: is that only one of them can yeah. be out at the same and, time. When yeah. in fact, it's the truth and, is the opposite. Yeah. Like both always have to be out yeah. if you're a unified and really, person. And really, once he's out at the same time as Bad Cooper, like nothing happens. It's not like, um, like there's glitches or anything. Like they're just both out at the same time. And um, right. And so that's clearly just his rule yeah, that he's that's his made rule. up. Yeah. That he, he can't deal, he can't live, like he can't figure it out. That's what he needs to figure out is they have, you have to have both of them. And what I think the bad Cooper is, is his bad side, like desperately trying to like say like, I exist, like I am here. And he doesn't want to go back into the Black Lodge. He doesn't want to be forced out. And he tries all these different ways. Like one of them is you have a son because you raped Audrey. Like you have you you have a son you can't just forget about that right and and then so Cooper's imagination just kills Richard right. like um and then he goes and then in episode seventeen we're like this is so great he's good Cooper he's gonna kill bad Cooper and he does kill bad Cooper 
And we thought that might have been a good sign, but I think it's really not. A, right. It's really bad, actually. Uh, right. Um, so that, like, when he, you will know that he breaks out when he doesn't put right. Bad Cooper back in the lodge, right. or when they uni- when he doesn't destroy Bad Cooper. Right. He doesn't burn up. He yeah. actually like stays, and they can unify somehow. Right. And and then. So, so the Dougie to bad Co- to destroying Bad Cooper, I think, is one cycle that he goes through, and then that ends, and he still hasn't saved Laura. He's destroyed Bob, but he still hasn't saved saved Laura. So he starts a new cycle, and that cycle is um, going to Philip Jeffries and um, and taking him back in time to try and save Laura that way, but that doesn't work. Um, she disappears. She does the same scream that she does in the Black Lodge when she's being, like, forced away. And I think that scream is, like, leave me in peace. Like, you're, you're forcing, like, when she's, when she, like, goes up in the air, that's because she can't. Like, she, he's, he's making her, like, um, have, like, stuck and she can't just be at peace and be dead. Like, he can't. He's drawing her into his illusion or his his delusion that he has to be the one that saves people and he has Mm -hmm. to be right in the same way that we might be doing that to cooper right and and then when he says when when laura in that cycle says where are we going and he says we're going home like why would you want to take her home that's the worst place for her to go like that is where all her torment and and but he refuses to go home himself himself and really he has it switched like he should go home and Laura should not. Like, Laura should be gone from that home. She should just be dead. And so then when he takes her home, or when he when he tries taking her home, she does the scream, the you can't just leave me be scream, and then yeah. disappears. And then disappears, yeah. So that didn't work. Got to try a new cycle. And so that cycle is um, when he wakes up as Richard. Um... And, um, I don't, I, and, and it seems like he really is a combination of all three Coopers, the Dougie, the good Cooper and the bad Cooper. Cause he's, he's like, he, he, he just doesn't seem like, At that point like, when yeah, he's Richard, yeah. He, he just doesn't seem like good yeah. Cooper. Anybody, he says It does that, seem unified in a way, yes. but not in a way that is necessarily seems good. Right, right. Yeah. And, but. The thing is, it does take place in reality. Like, not I'm not saying it's real, but it's taking the setting is yeah. actual reality, Be- and we know because Odessa is a real town. Yeah, um, that census and the Valero and yeah, the, the and the I think that that shipping. restaurant probably exists. Yeah. Um, and then he goes to to Carrie Page's house, who is Laura Palmer. And he calls her Laura Palmer, and she's like, I don't know who that is. And it's almost like, I mean, she's obviously in a bad situation. She, like, she killed somebody. And he, he actually looks like uh, like Bob killed, like Bob was removed from him, like yeah. his, his chest. I don't know how to interpret that exactly, but that's what he looks like. Well, I have um, a way that you're definitely not going to like. Well, but, yeah. I, yeah. Um, so then he... Uh, he says, I want to take you home. Basically, he says, I want to take you home. And um, he does. And um, you, you go to the Valero, which is an actual gas station. And then 
he takes her to the house and then like I and then all those that stuff happens um that I talked about which is parallel to um Audrey and and then when it cuts to the red room I think that just I I don't like to admit it because I like it's so frustrating because it's it's obviously way closer to reality it's one of the last I think it's the last step that we saw because it's it's the shortest in the time period yeah and it's um it's in it's takes place in reality and he's the closest to unified and he's the closest to unified and um so you might think if there were another season and I'm not saying there even should be, but I'm or saying... Or a fire walk with me, like, movie kind of thing. Yeah. Then that the next cycle might be him getting to the point maybe where Audrey is, right? But we see Audrey maybe as a Nadine. Nadine yeah. yeah. And then Audrey is up, and now she's in the real world, whatever that is for her. And Cooper now needs to do this the, mm-hmm. the sort of second-to-last... Uh, cycle to get himself mm-hmm. into into reality or truth and and this Acceptance. is very Buddhist in the sense that you they have this idea that you keep reliving this life over and over again until you can finally see the truth you finally get enlightened um, but I think here the idea is that enlightenment isn't necessarily just being blissfully happy it is it's a full kind of acceptance i mean i think nadine is it's like that acceptance of yeah, she's probably everything not happy you've done that her husband like she her husband right. doesn't love her but she's ha- it's relief like i think it's just relief yeah, yeah. it's and, an acceptance yeah. of he doesn't love me yeah. like and i've screwed him over and I, and I'm just accepting that so that I can liberate him and liberate myself yeah. from this. And, like, it sucks that we didn't get to see Cooper like that. But he, he like us, like I think, can't let go of Cooper, the F, like Dale Cooper, the FBI agent. Like, um, he, and, he and loves bad that Co- character. And bad Cooper, he can't accept that that's part mm-hmm. of him, that mm-hmm. that is part of who he is. In the same way that Audrey can't accept... Yeah, actually, she's not a Hollywood movie star. Like, yeah. she might have been if she had been in the Mulholland Drive story. And no, she's probably just going to live in Twin Peaks as a married 50-something-year-old. And that's, like, not old. great. Like, that's just not a great thing, but she at least has to accept it. And yeah. Cooper, he has to live with the really bad stuff that he did, and that's not fun. That's probably not a fun thing to do, but he has right. to do it. Right. He has to face up to the fact that he may have sexually assaulted somebody that he cares about deeply and that he really didn't save the people that he uh, that he tried to save. Yeah. So no and, wonder he's trying yeah. to, like, spin these, kind, yeah. these illusions. He's yeah. like, he's kind of a sucky FBI agent if he didn't, yeah. like, he, he doesn't want to be that. And, um, and then we, as an audience have to, like, not picture, not hold on to Twin Peaks. And that's not great. Like, we like Twin Peaks. But we have to, we have to accept that they're older and it's not, it's not them. And that's what, that's what David Lynch is criticizing us for doing is, like, you're making these characters do this. I think that's, that's pretty good, say. and it's very. We just watched Lost Highway last night. 
it's a similar kind of idea where the main character in Lost Highway, if you haven't seen it, I don't even know if it's a spoiler at this point because David Lynch is so much about this idea, yeah. but uh, certainly one way of interpreting that is a man who's done something terrible and who and can't accept a certain part of himself. Mm-hmm. Just spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but in this case it's that he can't possess his wife and he killed her. And he, like, killed, he, he her killed her and, and she was cheating on him. And someone, yeah. well, he killed her and then someone that he, she was possibly cheating on him yeah. with. And so he keeps spinning realities. And justifying and like. Yeah. Um, and so it's it's very similar. And it's. Um, and Mulholland Drive. And it's similar too. to Mulholland Drive. And uh, it's similar to a lot of things. Inland Empire, if we understood it. Probably, yeah. yeah. Maybe Blue Velvet. <laughs> well, that one is a little harder to fit into this yeah. pattern, but yeah. All yeah. right. Should we wrap up? Do we yeah. have anything else to say? That was good. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't think I should talk about James. Yeah. Okay. Forget James. James is still cool. Or, or James was never cool. No, David Lynch said he was cool. And he thinks he wishes he was cool. Yeah. So James could be part of this cycle, too. Maybe. Right? Yeah, no, I, I think it's it's definitely possible because why would he be a big part of the show? Because he doesn't have a relationship with either of them. But, and it's not as important, I think, to the... Yeah. All right. Well, thank you, Eliza. <laughs> You're welcome. I feel family. better about it. <laughs> Me too. I feel like I have a grasp on it. Yeah. But it always slips away. Yeah. Because we're gonna probably talk about it later, and then have no I- no idea now. It's it's like Laura is like we're leading out. We're in Laura. a cycle. we're in a cycle of we, trying to figure out yeah. Twin Peaks, and we just need to accept that it's not explainable. That's exactly right. We are definitely in a cycle. Like we we walk the dogs in a in a circle. In a circle talking about this stuff, and we make progress, maybe or yeah, but we. Keep we, coming we take back. Place closer and to it keep slipping out of our grasp at the end. We're not even at Audrey's stage yet, I no. don't think. Yeah. No. All right. All right. Thank you. And um I'm sure there'll be more Twin Peaks talk <laughs> on this on this podcast soon. Thanks, Lai.